Hi, are you both there? I'm here. Oh, hi, Raymond. I'm here. Hi, oh, Jack. Wonderful. How are you? I'm fine, sir. Great. So, Thank I'll you so much, Jack, for everything. This has been great being with you in the last few days. And well, you know, Raymond, as I said, I've got to thank you. I mean, what a great honor to be with the man who really inspired me to uh, to follow this path. So thank you. Well, you know, we're all in this together. We this are. A, a I think that's what... Adventure. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to introduce my next guest is Dr. John L. Turner. Dr. Turner is a board-certified neurosurgeon, and his new book, Medicine, Miracles, and Manifestations, is a nonfiction narrative about his surgical career and spiritual quest and his evolutionary journey in the field of integral medicine. While completing his doctoral degree in physics, Dr. Turner was given a book about Edgar Cayce, The Sleeping Prophet, which changed the course of his life. For 18 years, Dr. Turner served as the sole neurosurgeon on the island of Hawaii. From his first day on call in Hilo, Hawaii, metaphysical events began to occur. Dr. Turner's curiosity drove him to explore non-traditional healing. Some of the healing techniques he used included the practice of Joe Ray, chanting and meditation, soul travel, and astral projection, and precognition, and remote viewing. Dr. Turner is the only brain surgeon to write about medicine from the perspective of integral medicine and uses his complementary techniques prior to, during, and after surgery. Notably, Dr. Turner's complementary methods explore pathways that lead to the spiritual world. To learn more about Dr. John L. Turner and his work, please visit his website where you can also subscribe to his blog at johnlturner.com. That's johnlturner.com. Please welcome to the show my very special guest, Dr. John L. Turner. Aloha, Jack. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, KG, and thank you and Raymond for allowing me to join you in this discussion. Yes. So what led you to work with Dr. Moody? Well, as I've said, I, I really work for Dr. Moody. I, I would like to say I work with Dr. Moody, but the reason I say for Dr. Moody is that I feel that his compilation of the stories of shared near-death experiences and what he has to teach in his new book, Glimpses of Eternity, is just outstanding. And, you know, I, I came to work in this capacity to discuss these things with uh, Dr. Raymond Moody, who they call the father of near-death experiences, because of a couple of projects that have to do with the uh, uh, producers in Australia, Viv Summers and uh, Anna Reeves. And these ladies have wanted to present uh, a TV series that is called Proof, Beyond the Reasonable Doubt, that explains that there is survival of consciousness. And as a neurosurgeon, I've been very interested in how the brain is involved with all of this and what consciousness is all about. And if we look at the world situation today, KG, and as you and Raymond well know, things are in great turmoil. And I think that by explaining that to the average person who wants to know what happens after death, why am I here, where do I go, if they realize that consciousness persists, and there is this afterlife or this period in which we change and we go on to a new dimension, I think then we can be, go beyond the fact that we're all brothers and sisters, that we're all one, we're all connected in this, and we have to respect everybody and everything. So that's the reason I'm involved in these projects, which are films and TV projects, and also to promote Dr. Moody's great book, because I think that anyone who reads that book is going to have to say, wow, this is the way it works. And I think it will change their lives. Mm -hmm. So what do you feel is the best evidence for survival of consciousness? And I'd like to hear from both of you on this. Okay, well, would you like me to go first? Yes, why uh, don't you start? All right. The best evidence. Well, mm -hmm. I think, uh, well, if we review what are the different evidences, I would say that uh, it depends on the researcher. Some will say that mental mediums produce the best evidence of contact with the afterlife. The people who promote instrumental communication, transcommunication, and the you know EVP, electronic voice phenomena, will say, look, this is definite proof. We're getting information here through these electronic methods that you can't dispute. And there are others, such as the uh, eye movement desensitization that produces a induced uh, after-death experience. They will say, this is the proof. For me, the best proof is the fact that someone can be in the room with a patient who is passing and experience a lot of the same things that patient is going through. For example, that panoramic life review, 
sometimes the opening of an of a entrance into another dimension. And some people who have actually left their body also, and maybe left with that patient who has left their body, and almost traveled into that next dimension. And to see, you know, the relatives and loved ones who seem to come to lead this patient on, that to me is the proof, because it takes away all these arguments about the dying brain and hypoxia or carbon dioxide buildup or chemical release. You know, there's something here that's so significant it's led me to work for Dr. Moody in promoting his book. So I would say this is the best evidence, the shared near-death experience. And you, Raymond? I absolutely agree with Jack on this. I think this is uh, something that is really taking the whole discussion into a different dimension now Mm -hmm. because uh, I just can't see any plausible way. It's kind of like triangulation, in in effect. I mean, we're seeing the same thing from the point of view of people who almost die and return, but also from the people who are standing around. So we're seeing the same thing from two slightly different angles. And um, to me, this is the strongest indication of of an afterlife. And I think um, that this is that very quickly now we're going to be seeing entirely new means of investigation open up, mm-hmm. uh, entirely new rational methods for uh, for honing in on this question. And um, concurrently with that, there are developments in the field of logic that I don't really have. This I am, uh, as I said, in life after life. My first, I. Um, was uh, initially a professor of philosophy in my areas of special interest, logic and uh, philosophy of language. And this is a very technical discipline, so I, I mean, I it really couldn't broach it in, uh, in, in this context except to say that um, I, I can assure you that there are new developments in in the field that we could call logic uh, that are bringing about new, uh, entirely rational methods Mm -hmm. for investigating the question of an afterlife that we haven't had in the past. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be this combination, uh, and Jack alluded uh, uh, when he, at, at first he was talking about the different, he said part of the question is, what is evidence? I mean, and, and um, I think that's entirely right, that uh, there's a big conceptual question here as to um, how we would think of the notion of evidence of an afterlife in the first place. But now I think that that big stumbling block is, is removed, too, because of developments in, in logic that are maybe too uh, a little bit technical to talk about in this in this. Uh, Context, but nonetheless, then applied to this, um, these shared death experiences and the near death experiences, I think that we are really, really inching closer to um, lending rational credence to the notion of an afterlife. I think at least it's going to get harder and harder for people who have some sort of um, constitutional. Uh, distaste for this idea of an afterlife, and I'm and I'm really kind of embarrassed to admit to you that I had that for years myself. I just seemed so counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it seems. And from I, someone I who's an intuitive, it seems counterintuitive not to. <laughs> I know, I know, and I think that's partly like one's background. I I just was not. I grew up a. A devoted amateur astronomer. Yeah, my, the way you're conditioned. wasn't religious, so to me this is an outlandish idea, mm-hmm. and yet um, I do see that things are closing in on me, whereas uh, anything I can say, especially with the addition of the, the shared death experiences, which are an apparently an identical phenomenon to the, to the near-death experience, yet happens to people who just happen to be standing around, uh, then it gets harder and harder to uh, run away from the implications of mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Well, so, um, 
Uh, Raymond, there's probably no way to run away from it. Like I KG, think you're imagine, right. Yeah, imagine you're there, KG, with a, a close friend or relative who is dying, and you see the light, you hear the music, and you know, and maybe even go. Oh, forward. I've had those experiences. I I've had the shared experiences yeah. with my dad when he was crossing, and then my mom who just recently went into hospice. I've already had lots of interesting experiences I had with my mom in uh, prayer for her uh, when I first found out that she was in hospice. I saw this big white angel with, she had a, like a crucifix and like this, nun, she was like a nun, a nun nurse. <laughs> and I heard the name St. Bernadette. And I had no idea who is St. Bernadette. So I looked it up, and St. Bernadette is the person she helps people who are crossing, and also people with, uh, my mom has advanced emphysema, so she helps, she died, I guess, she had asthma her entire life, and she helps people with respiratory things. And she discovered uh, Lourdes in the south of France. So I, I you don't have to, <laughs> I'm, you're talking with one of the, <laughs> You're talking to the, choir. to the choir. Right? <laughs> to the choir. Well, listen, the thing is, and as I discussed and asked Raymond about uh, not too long ago, is that to have these experiences with the person who is passing, does it require that that you have this emotional contact? Because a skeptic might say, listen, this is still an imaginary thing. But doctors and nurses who may not have this close contact with the patient have experienced similar things. So it kind of takes it out of the contact, context of imagination and mm -hmm. hopeful thinking. It appears mm -hmm. this is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be a significant change uh, as we, you know, discuss all the various implications uh, about uh, persistence of consciousness. I think it's going to uh, end up with this being very significant, the mm -hmm. shared experience. Well, it's like an eyewitness, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. like someone yeah. who's the eyewitness at the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, right. And all of this coming together right at the time where the in which the world most needs it mm -hmm. I think is a is a fascinating uh, uh, confluence of events yes because um, it's really just getting increasingly difficult I think to see any easy way out of the situation that the world is in right now and We're going to have to transcend the old consciousness. Yes. That's yeah. what's going to ha need to ha take place. Yes, that's, that's right. The, the, there is going to be very soon now a sort of worldwide shift in consciousness. And um, it's, I, I think it's probably impossible to predict in advance what it's going to be like. Or what I it looks like or... Yeah, I think there there have been times like this in the past when the human mind had to uh, uh, undergo huge shifts. And uh, a lot of them had to do in ancient Greek philosophy, for example. Uh, and uh, um, some of the foundational notions of Western thought were, for example, uh, the notion of truth. That is, that there are some things that are the case no matter what anybody thinks about it was first propounded in 500 BC by a philosopher named Parmenides and then uh, Plato a hundred plus years later came along and and um, drew the distinction between truth and falsehood and, and wedded the pursuit of truth to the uh, literal domain of language and when he did that he he, he effectively laid down the distinction between figures of speech and literal language, which, of course, we learn when we're in grammar school and high school. So it seems to us that that's part of just how things are. But actually, that, wasn't, that didn't come around till Plato, who pointed out the distinction between figures of speech and literal language. And then Aristotle came along and codified logic, and then people had a... Had a reasoned methodology for thinking logically and um, I think that we're soon going to be into a shift mm -hmm. that's uh, uh, a lot like those shifts like entire shift in the way that people think mm -hmm. and um, I, I'm really confident of this yes. as a matter of fact. Well we're birthing all these new technologies that can facilitate that like it sounds like what you're talking about is this 
development of a whole new field of science for near-death and out-of-body experiences where they'll develop technology and am I right or is that well, yes, and I think that uh, soon we'll see that there are parts of our minds that we have shut down. And and, and have they done any research with that? Like you talked about certain parts of the brain lighting up after, you know, or somebody yeah. has a near-death experience. Is there some way to see if they have different things in their brain you know, operating after having those experiences? There actually are ways of doing this. It's, uh, it take, it's it's uh, it takes quite a while to explain it, but basically there are there's reliable methodologies now that are just beginning to seep out. I mean, there probably is no more than a few hundred people in the world right now who who have gotten this. But yes, there are, and and it's remarkably sim- uh, simple. Actually, it takes takes a certain amount of uh, stick-to-itiveness. I mean, you've got to reason your way through a long argument, but uh, when you do that, you you do that. It turns out to be fairly simple to open up uh, a new section of our rational minds that we didn't know even existed, mm-hmm. and that this is these new principles of reasoning are mm-hmm. are very apropos to the question of an afterlife. In other words, they. They give us new methods of investigating lots of different questions, not just life after death, all sorts of questions of science and spirituality. But um, this is not something I think it'll be, you know, it's not going to be right away. This will be in the next couple of years, I think, is where this is going to gain much more general mm-hmm. um, circulation. But for now, I think... Um, you know, I'm completely confident that um, very shortly now that uh, that the question, the way we investigate questions of life after death, will undergo a very dramatic transformation. We'll have whole new ways of looking at this. And yes. what do you yes. think about if this, I may Jack? Jump in a little bit, yeah. If I may jump in here a little bit on that. Yes. Uh, way back, uh, you know, Duncan McDougall did the research in which he took uh, TB patients who were dying and he put them on a very sensitive scale and he tried to measure what happens at the time the exact moment of death and he and a couple of his uh, compatriots would sit there and watch carefully and he found out and he determined that there was a loss of three quarters of an ounce and that's equal to 21 grams that everyone has heard about. Well, he figured that there must be a weight of the body and the matter and energy, and this was his conclusion. Well, now, what do we have? We have functional MRIs that can show that at the time around death, there's this amazing period of lucidity where some of the areas that you would expect in someone who is dying wouldn't light up, but they light up with functional MRI. Dr. Johnny Lerma has been working with this, and Melvin Morris, uh, says that he is working on grants so he can also use something like a functional MRI to show what is really happening. Mm-hmm. So that's the science of it. It's advanced quite a bit with that and PET scanners and all these things. And people are opening up, institutions are opening up to say, well, let's do a little more research. But however, I feel that anyone that can understand and can even experience this shared near-death experience will have to realize that this is the way it does work, and there's absolutely no question about it. And all the research is good, all the academic interest is good, but I think the proof is right there. And I think Dr. Moody has done enough to hit it on the hit the nail on the head. This is what we needed. This will really okay. help. Well, I know that in your years of working uh, and doing research uh, as a neurosurgeon, you had quite a number of experiences uh, with people. Did you ever have any shared death experiences yourself or you know when my mother passed I wasn't as fortunate as Dr. Moody when his mother passed you know I sat with her and during the last uh, three weeks of her life she suffered from uh, severe Alzheimer's during her last years Mm -hmm. she was almost 99 when she passed but what happened after three weeks of being completely out sleeping no oral intake nothing she suddenly turned and opened her eyes to look at me she didn't say a word. I did the talking, and looking in her eyes, I said, Mom, I want to thank you again for everything you've done for us. I said, because of you, we'll be just fine, and you can leave. You can go now. 
And then it was interesting. She closed her eyes and then went back to sleep. Now, I should have stayed there then, but what I did, I set my clock uh, for two hours because I would get up and roll her every two hours. She was completely bedridden. Mm -hmm. And then I had the dream, KG and Raymond, that in a dream I had on a white coat, I'm making rounds at the hospital, and the nurse says, Dr. Turner, can you please uh, take a look at your mother? So I walk over to the bed and I pull out my pen and on the bed sheet I write, no oral intake for three weeks, family does not wish to push fluids. And as soon as I signed my name, I woke up and I went to the next room and sure enough, she was still warm but not breathing. Mm -hmm. So I really missed a chance to have that shared near-death experience. But I tell you what, at that time, a couple of years ago, I didn't know about the shared near-death experience. Mm -hmm. And now that Dr. Moody has brought it to light and over the years he's collected the cases, I think people are going to be more and more aware of this and it's more and more is going to happen. Because people yeah, it's like the life. first person who ran that seven-minute mile. <laughs> <laughs> then yeah. it was, you know, and so it'll be like it brings it into people's consciousness that this is something they can experience, and so or then they'll be open. You mean four minute mile? Oh, four minute mile. Sorry about yeah, that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was the seven okay, minute mile. Okay. <laughs> four minute right. mile. This is going to change, and as Dr. Mooney has probably already mentioned, you know, medicine has changed, and we no longer try to shoo the family and friends out. You know, we'd rather say now. You know, please be there at this time because this is a critical time. So more and more of these will come out and people will realize, look, there is this spiritual world, there is this persistence of consciousness. And with this and the other things we hope to present in this Beyond a Reasonable Doubt TV series, I think for years people are going to learn more and more about this and we'll be more and more kind to each other mm -hmm. and it will be a world-changing thing. I think yes. we're right on the cusp of that. Is that going to be Yes, yes. Yes. Um, yes, I and this um, moment that, or this uh, this fact that um, Jack mentioned about the lucidity of people and the terminal events. Um, this is really an extraordinary thing, and again, it's very common. In other words, this is not much talked about, but any sincere investigator uh, can find as many cases of this as. Um, they wish, and it's it's very common, as as um, Jack described there, that when a person is terminally ill, they may go through periods of literally a couple of weeks or more, and they seem to be um, completely out of touch, and the family is just sort of sitting around, assuming that um, you know they're just sitting there waiting for the uh, their family member's heart to stop beating. When all of a sudden the um, the person will rally, and and the many listeners who have seen this themselves will will agree that it's just extraordinary that that for want of a better term, people in this situation become more alive than alive. It's just it's startling to watch this and. Uh, Whereas before they were obtunded and apparently comatose, they come out uh, of this and they are very articulate. They tell everybody at the bedside, they give everybody a message, uh, and then they just turn over and die. And this is really extraordinary that the, 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 the most lucid I have ever seen some people was at them just before they die. And, and uh, uh, there used to be a name for this. It was um, at the time when our ancestors went, you know, would have the death at home, they were aware of this phenomenon, and they called it Fey, F-E-Y. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look up in the dictionary, you'll see mm -hmm. that that word has a lot of different meanings. But the sort of central meaning of it is that Fey is this very phenomenon that that people on the verge of death will become extremely lucid i mean uh, one man from uh came came um years ago this was 15 14 years ago i guess came and he was describing this phenomenon with his wife and um he was um uh she had had a long declining illness and then he was getting ready to go down. He wanted to go down to the local convenience store just for a few minutes. So he 
walked in and his wife seemed uh, preternaturally alive, for want of a better term. He said just, he was amazed and his his thought was that, oh my goodness, she's going to come out of this lengthy illness that she had had. And they had a very deep discussion one-on-one. And uh, then, as you can imagine, he 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 said, I'm just going to go to the store for a few minutes. And of course, uh, when he came back, she had died. And, and I wish that I could convey the look on his face that he had as he uh, uh, described this to me. And I remember his exact words. He said that looking back on it, he said that time that he was with her just before he died, he said it was as though she already had one foot on the other side. And this is a phenomenon that is so startling that I think if people haven't experienced in in it themselves, they just they'll have it a hard time to 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 believe. But nonetheless, you can ask around among hospice workers and physicians who've dealt with the terminally ill, and it was it is absolutely the case that many people, even if they've been obtunded for days and days will just prior to life uh, to, to dying they will sort of sit up and they'll come to and they seem more alive than alive even like they're already uh, sometimes in this state they they seem to light up with a, a light that's not of this dimension at all and uh, again these are things that sound very startling to talk about but if you ask around among people who um, work with the terminally ill, you're, this this is just a, a occurrence common enough that uh, almost anybody in that profession will know about this. That's right. And, you know, I mentioned that was a brief flash. You know, my mother laying motionless for three weeks suddenly sat up, turned to look right in my eyes. So very startling. And... Uh, so I think, yes, this is that the way it works. And look how many people will say that the departed spouse comes back, you know, to communicate with them or they stay in communication. I mean, this is a common thing. And at first it looks like uh, wives' tales, but now with the uh, proof and the evidence that uh, Raymond has presented and others, I think there's no question about it anymore. Yeah, there's confirmation, and so people will come out and begin sharing their experiences. They feel more they can open up and share I think a lot of people feel a lot of emotional pain a lot of unfinished business things like that that come with the dying process so I think this will add a whole element that will lighten things up so that people uh, they'll take the opportunity for healing uh, well, during I those what's going to happen now I'm going to guess into the future Raymond and KG is that we won't be talking about death anymore because probably there is no such thing as death. And it's merely a like changing trains. Mm-hmm. You know, we go to the next uh, or a different level, different mm-hmm. dimension. And it's kind of like waking up in a new dream, you know, leaving one dream, going to another dream. This is the way I w- mm-hmm. it works. And I don't think we'll talk about death and grieving. And actually, we should be celebrating when a yes. life uh, well-lived comes to an end and know that they're going on to continue other good work. So I think this is what the change will be. And I think also it's uh, for, it's grief is, I mean, in it, in, when it exists, it is the most painful of human emotions. And I think that uh, the another aspect of this work that Jack and I do is that it, this does give hope for people who are grieving and it demonstrably uh, comforts people in the grieving process and I think also for the very many people who are afraid of death and who are perhaps not living life to the fullest because of their fear of death um, I think this new work absolutely does and I mean new work not talking about me personally but the work of Jack and, and of myself and of uh, our, our colleagues in this field who, who investigate these things that uh, I think it's pretty demonstrable that, that these, these experiences do um, uh, soften the fear of death. I, I know that because I've heard people uh, telling me this ever since I first started lecturing about these experiences, which was in about 
1970. And um, so over the 40 years that I've been in the public arena about this, this is something I hear more or less constantly from people, is that uh, knowing about this information um, uh, gives them hope and uh, helps them helps console them in, in the face of a loss of a loved one and also uh, helps them with their fear of death. Yes, and I think shifting our consciousness to that we are eternal beings, I think that changes everything. Well, it really does. And you know what it does to me is it makes me wonder what this place we're in is all about. Mm -hmm. I mean, since this is a fairly new thing to me that I've sort of been maneuvered almost into a situation where I've got to say that the most plausible and honest thing to say is that there's an afterlife, then that really makes this state of existence we're in now a lot more mysterious. I mean, what is this all about? It's um, it, In a funny sort of way, my own insight uh, in that, that this is the way it is, that there is an afterlife, that it's really made this life that we're in much more puzzling. Like, what's, what's this all about? Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, the best best answer I've come up with is the one that I heard from George Ritchie in 1965, and I've heard from thousands of people since that time, which is basically that um, this seems to be God's uh, educational medium that we're in, and it's uh, and it seems to have to do with learning to love mm-hmm. more than anything else, and pursuing knowledge is another thing. You often hear people uh, say who've been through this is that uh, they or a very common um, uh, after effect is after somebody has one of these experiences is that they say that they go down to the local community college to sign up for courses because they um, this experience really does make us very aware of our own ignorance in a very positive way. I mean, uh, if people have just been get, getting through life without much curiosity, and uh, uh, then they have one of, an experience like this, it really uh, creates them in them an impassioned desire to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the best friends I ever had was this wonderful woman named Vi Horton who had her near-death experience in um, May of 1971. And I got to know Vi and her older sisters very well. And uh, her older sisters told me that prior to her near-death experience um, that she had, uh, that her common reading matter was romance novels was the only thing she ever read. But after... uh, I had her experience. She used to come to visit my wife and me for a couple of weeks at a time. She was um, she loved our children and she took care of them a lot for us. And uh, but Vi would raid my library and you know, of philosophy books and mm-hmm. psychology books, and sometimes would read like two books a day of and and would understand the material and and. Um, she, as as I've heard from quite a number of other patients with extremely lengthy cardiac arrest, talk about that they become aware almost of another plane of existence that has to do with the uh, the pursuit of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, as George Ritchie uh, put it, he said, um, "Now that that uh, this learning is not something that stops when you die." But that goes on quite literally, George mm-hmm. says, for eternity. So that mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It just recently I heard a, a man, um, actually, by coincidence, this, uh, the, this was a man from Hawaii, an artist. Um, I, and uh, uh, this filmmaker told me about this friend of his who had um, lost his son from an accident. And he said then his son shortly thereafter came back to him and said um, that he was in effect he compared this 
life to a university and that uh, this this process of knowledge is something that goes on even even in the uh, in, in the, um, the the what I, what we call death but as as Jack was saying and as I heard also Robert Kestenbaum who used to be the um, editor of the Omega Journal, which is the Journal of Death Education. Um, and about, I guess, 15, 16 years ago, Bob Kestenbaum said to me that he had begun to think in the course of his career that death itself changes. In other words, that um, what we call death in, in any one era is not the same as we call death in some other era. I mean, uh, for example, these people who undergo these um, surgeries in which all of the blood is drained out of their brain to repair an aneurysm, for example, and uh, they're uh, put into a severely hypothermic condition, so their body temperature is way down, and then uh, they, they stop the heart beating, and then they drain the blood from the patient's head and this uh, Jack would be able to say how long these operations go on but as I recall it's about an hour or so but uh, and during that time these people have no brain waves or whatever and so what would you say about that with then that people are you know then they are heated up again the blood is reinfused into their body they're warmed up and their heart is started again and my goodness, they're alive again. Well, what do we call that state? Ben, uh, I would like to know, Jack. I mean, what do you make of this? I mean, well, I know that when you and I went to medical school, the thing that Pam Reynolds was in would have been called death. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit, Raymond. Yeah, you and I started medical school the same year, 1972. Is that not correct? That's right. That's right. So here's the thing with Pam Reynolds, and, you know, that's a famous case, and I mentioned it in my book, and the reason, you know, Dr. Spetzler was the surgeon in charge, and he kindly wrote the foreword for my book. Uh, you know, I really appreciate that. I think he's one of the best, if not the best. He is. He is a good man. He's a good he man. He certainly is. Now, here's what he told me. Uh, I met him at one conference. Uh, this is way before I thought about writing a book, but I knew about this case. And I said, Bob, I have a question for you. I said, at the time this happened with Pam Reynolds, we'll talk about what happened in a minute, and her near-death experience, I said, did you know about such things? And he looked at me, and he said, Jack, absolutely not. He said, I had never heard of out-of-the-body or near-death experiences. And he said, I find it simply astounding that the brain could produce such hallucinations when it is electrically silent. This is what he told me. Now, the case of Pam Reynolds, a pseudonym for a lady who was a musician, country western, uh, entertainer, I guess, and she's passed on recently. She finally did make that final journey. But what happened was this. She had an aneurysm of the brain, a kind of a ballooning out, which prone to rupture, but it was deep in the brain. And I believe technically it was called a basilar tip aneurysm. Now, to get to this is very difficult and actually carries so much risk that he felt, let's do this cardiac standstill procedure. And here's what they do. As Raymond said, they cool the body down. Now, in, in Tim Von Mommel's uh, great book, Consciousness Beyond Life, he uh, talks about this case, and he said the cooling was to a value of 50 degrees Fahrenheit. But actually, I called Dr. Spetzler's office and spoke with the physi uh, you know, physiologist who was on that case, and it was 60 degrees is about the temperature they cool the body to protect the brain. Then they stop the blood flow. They stop the blood flow to the brain, and they physically elevate the patient's head and drain the blood out of the brain, right? During this time, the EEG is completely flatlined during wow. the time it takes to do this. Also... Uh, evoked potentials, which are done by placing a 100 dB click sound in the ears. Now, let me tell you what that sound is. As Chris Carter mentions in his great book, Right, Science and the Near-Death Experience, as I read that about the clicks, as he describes this case, I'm wondering, well, how? what is 100 dB? And then there it is, a footnote on that page saying, 
this is the level standing in front of a symphony orchestra, and uh, a lot of those people do have hearing loss, those musicians, right? He talks about that. But anyway, the signal produced by that click was not picked up on the cortex, you know, by EEG, I mean recording, so she was technically dead during yeah. that time. All right, now, here's the thing. She was able to recount many things during that time, and cardiologist Sabom describes this in his interviews, that she described the tool we use called a craniotome, which means an instrument for opening the skull. And it's like a high-powered saw in a way, but it does look like she, her description of a toothbrush or some type of electric drill. And she even described the sound, this high-frequency hum that it makes, conversations in the operating room, all of that. And then she describes leaving her body through the top of her head, mm -hmm. going and being escorted and meeting her relatives in, in this other dimension. And actually, she was literally uh, brought back by her great uncle, and he said, you have to go back. And she was afraid, and he said, no, it's like jumping into a pool of water. And he actually pushed her back into her body. Mm -hmm. And she described that as being just like that, jumping into a pool of ice water. It was shocking for her. She didn't really anticipate how bad it was going to be, and that's why she was reluctant. But the point is, that's a famous case. Now... Someone who wants to be skeptical, Raymond and, and KG, will say, well, wait a minute, 60 degrees, flat line, isn't it possible that, that at that low temperature, there's still some brain activity producing all of this, even though we didn't record it on these instruments? Then I would cite the case of Melvin Morris, a young girl who in the Pocatello, Idaho, YWCA swimming pool, right? was found missing, and they determined that for about 14 minutes, it looks like this child had been underwater drowning. And when she was resuscitated, uh, later, Dr. Morris came across her in a clinic, sometime later, after this resuscitation. And she said to him, I'm still mad at you for what you did. And apparently he said, what are you talking about? And she told him things about how, when she was brought back, she heard Dr. Morris on the phone talking to someone, and he quoted his statement. He said, what am I supposed to do now? He was calling for help during that resuscitation, what to do. She also recounted some of the nurses' conversations. And here, there was no blood flow to that brain, and the temperature of the pool is around 85 degrees Fahrenheit, warm enough that someone could survive indefinitely in that water. So there are a lot of these kind of things that are proof, but what could be more proof, KG, then, as you already know, and Raymond knows, and I wish I had experienced to be there at the bedside and to hear this music, to see this light, and to even see the deceased relatives or friends as the light opening up. Now, what more does it take for someone to understand that? So either all these people are lying when they say this happened to them, or they're telling the truth, and I have no reason to suspect so many people would conjure up a lie, including doctors and nurses and hospice workers. So there's just no question about it. And hopefully this TV series is going to bring this out in all kind of ways. And we're opening our website to the public now, KG. Mm -hmm. They can go to beyondareasonabledoubt.tv where we're discussing these things. People who have worked with EVP or mediums or, and near-death experiences. And we'd like the general public to say what they think is important. So there's a way they can register on the site by first contacting me through my website. There's a way to email me, and I can look for them to register, and we can open up this discussion so we all start to share these experiences as brothers and sisters. Oh, that's wonderful. So do you guys have anything further you'd like to share before we close today's show? Jack? Uh, well, I think, you know, I'm not sure what you talked about in the hour before with Dr. Moody, but I think that you've covered the shared near-death near -death experiences and how important they are to show that it's not a manifestation of a dying brain. I think that's the key thing that I'd like to leave people with. And I think when they read Raymond's book, and I would read uh, the two, well, there's several key books he's written. Reunions was a great book about the psychomantium experience and we hope in a series gateway, a spin-off TV series, to be able to
put people in Dr. Moody's psychomantium chamber and let them experience some of these things mm -hmm. and maybe to, to describe their stories. And this may be a long-running TV series, too. So there's a lot on the cusp of the future. So I would Well, I definitely know. see, you know, I definitely was visioning and seeing this image of uh, this room. I don't know, maybe it's what you're, this name you've given it. Um, I yes, saw I that. So I yes. saw it being like a movie or television, or I definitely see that happening. So You, you saw this as a vision? Yes, I saw that when we were first talking. I saw that happening. Yeah. Well, the psychomantium, if people will read Dr. Moody's book, uh, they will see that this goes back to maybe Egyptians, the Greeks, and the mirror-gazing and scrying. Uh, this contact with the dead and you know there in, as Dr. Moody can speak about the ancient times you know people would go to to experience this to see their loved ones so Dr. Moody has recreated this type of chamber in his home in Atlanta and you know he spends time with the people to kind of you know ease this process and once they enter that chamber and they the ones who experience contact with those that departed sometimes it's not the one they had planned unexpectedly but this is what we hope to do in the TV series called Gateway. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Moody may want to end by commenting on the psychomantium chamber. Oh, I'd love to hear about that. Well, yes, this uh, again goes back to the ancient Greeks. And uh, who one, one of the really odd things, really, is that if we were transported back to ancient Greece in the time of uh, Plato, for example, in Athens 2,300 years ago, uh, we would find the same kinds of debates about near-death experiences going on then as now. All, all of these early philosophers knew about near-death experiences and vigorously debated the subject. And um, the ancient Greeks had techniques which actually existed in American culture up till about 1915, as far as I can uh, tell. And... Um, and this was a very well-known fact, is that you can create conditions into which people will see full-color, moving, three-dimensional apparitions of their departed loved ones in a full state of conscious awareness. And it's really remarkable, I think, that this was just a standard folk practice in America until about, say, 1915. And what I surmise happened at that time was that the radio age came and to and then the TV age, and, and instead of uh, sitting around interacting with things like this, as, uh, as people used to do in our great-grandparents' day, uh, then we went through this phase of uh, being electronically uh, um, engrossed in all the radio and later the TV. Yes, but this is a... It, it turns out to be remarkably uh, simple, to, to evoke the spirit of uh, reunion with departed loved ones. And um, I think, um, you know, this, this too, I, I think, will... Uh, I think uh, the way I see this developing is more along the lines of grief therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, some uh, psychologists, for example, in California at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology are teaching this to their psychotherapy graduate students as a modality for grief therapy. Um, and then I think along the lines of maybe establishing, you know, or, or more definitely establishing that there's an afterlife, I think the, uh, the going thing now really, it seems to me, is integrating this information about um, the shared death experiences, because this has simply got to, uh, to be intellectually honest now. I think it's going to require us getting away from the old debate about, well, maybe these uh, these things are, um, the near-death experiences are just the brain chemistry, because uh, when, you, when you bring in the shared death experiences, that, that old explanation goes out the window, and so now we are into, I think, a whole new era that... Mm -hmm. um, very shortly now, I think we're going to see an enormous shift in the interest in this question of an afterlife and also a very dramatic change in our ability to investigate the 
subject from a genuinely rational point of view. Mm-hmm. So I um, agree with that completely. Yeah, you know, one of my policies that I've always had, Jack, is that um, I never publish anything until I'm absolutely sure of one thing, and that is that anybody who sincerely investigates this uh, and, you know, sets out to try to confirm or disconfirm what I'm saying in this, and I'm referring here to this new book, The Glimpses of Eternity on the shared death experience, is that the reason I feel completely confident in putting that out is that uh, I'm absolutely assured just from experience that um, any sincere investigator who who looks into this is going to find plenty of cases of this themselves mm-hmm. and so they won't have to take it from me or from anyone else they can just uh, find it among their own friends and associates mm-hmm. and once that that sinks in then i think the whole investigation of the afterlife question is going to be on an entirely new footing Oh, I agree with you completely, Raymond. This is what's going to happen, and physicians and the general public is going to start to change the way they're looking at life and what it's all about. And yes. I think we'll treat each other with uh, compassion and kindness. Yes. So, well, it's been wonderful speaking with you both, Raymond and Jack, on today's show on the subject of near death and the afterlife. And thanks so much for joining me. Thank you thank so you, KG, much, KG, and thank you, Raymond, and, thank you, and aloha to both of you. So to learn more about Dr. Moody and his fascinating work on death and dying, please visit his website, lifeafterlife.com. That's lifeafterlife.com. And to learn more about Dr. John L. Turner and his work in spirituality and integral medicine, please visit his website where you can also subscribe to his blog at johnlturner.com. That's johnlturner.com. Have a beautiful day, everyone. A warm mahalo. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Raymond and Jack. And uh, I know you're going to have a really successful book launch. So, Thank you so much. I just really deeply appreciate you both. So thank you so much. And thank you, too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.